0: I am thankful for the chance to open God's word with you this morning. I hope that you will take your copy of the scriptures and open to Mark chapter 6. We've had a bit of a break and we are back in Mark starting this morning chapter 6. If you were with us last week, I trust that you were as blessed as I was by the message that Gabriel shared from Hebrews on the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. It's a helpful reminder of the, not only the need for faith, but of the object of our faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher. If you were with us last week, then you'll remember that Gabriel began his message, that message from Hebrews, describing how in the time and place where we live, there are, there are many people who speak of Jesus, who name the name of Jesus, but we're not all saying the same thing. You remember that from last week? Gabriel, will you come up and do that again? No. There are those who say they know Jesus, that they know about Jesus, but they're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Or maybe they're only talking about part of him, and not the full revelation that we have of Christ. So there's a sense in which we are blessed, as Brian alluded to, to live in a society in which the name of Jesus has been a part of our fabric— but there's also a real sense in which it's a perceived familiarity. That's a word I'm going to use this morning, and perceived familiarity. There are scores of people who give a, a nod to Jesus, who say they know who he is, and maybe even say that they believe in him, but they don't really know him, or they don't know him completely. And beyond that, they don't see any need for him in their day-to-day lives. And so we've probably all heard people, maybe you have family or friends or neighbors who have said things like this. I tried Jesus. I tried church. I tried faith. It just, it wasn't for me. I grew up in the church. I did the Jesus thing. It wasn't what I was looking for. It's a common refrain, isn't it? Something similar to that? Some people don't say it out loud, but the message of their lives is screaming, it's not for me. I've checked out Jesus, it just doesn't work. So common. People who've tried or looked into, but they've never truly met Jesus. And I say they've never truly met him because don't we agree that if they had, they would never be able to walk away? That if they truly knew him, they would see so clearly that they could not live life apart from him. But this is the situation all around us. Many people who have a passing familiarity with Jesus, and they take what little they know, and they draw a conclusion that it's it's not, it's not what I need. Best case, they don't see him as someone who really brings anything to the table. Worst case, they're hostile towards him and towards the suggestion that they need him. Either way, it's a rejection of Christ. And it starts with this perceived familiarity. I know who Jesus is. I've looked into Jesus, but I don't need him. And in part, what I'm trying to describe is the situation we have in Mark chapter 6. As we come to the text, we have a people who know some things about Jesus, they're familiar with him, but they don't actually know him. In fact, the things they do know about him don't add up to what they perceive the Christ should be. So it's actually their familiarity with Jesus, in a sense, that blinds them to believing in him, a perceived familiarity, Right? They think they know who he is, and who he is isn't consistent with what he is claiming. They think they know Jesus, but the Jesus they know is not a Jesus they trust or need. Say that again. They think they know Jesus, but the Jesus they know is not a Jesus they trust or see any need for, which is a trap I think we can all fall into. When life gets hard, when things are overwhelming, we can take whatever our perception of Jesus is and put that up next to whatever the situation is. And if we have an accurate view of Jesus, we always see him as sufficient. But if we have a deficient view of Jesus, we may be tempted to say, Jesus doesn't work for this. He's not sufficient. He's not supreme here. But like I said, it's a a perceived familiarity. It's a perceived understanding uh, of who Jesus is, and an incorrect perception of who Jesus is that leads to this unbelief, whether it's ultimate unbelief or unbelief in the moment, of what Jesus is and can do for us. With that said, we want to turn our attention to Mark six, And, and aren't you glad that we have a book from which we can learn who Christ is? Think about the revelation we've been given. God, in order to reveal himself, Hebrews chapter one came. I I haven't spoken in three weeks. So I'm putting sermons instead of sermons. Came and revealed himself to us. And now we have a book where we can go and we can mine the depths of it. If you want to know Jesus, he's been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. But before we read, it has been a few weeks since we've been at Mark. And I don't want us to, to, to pull this narrative out and miss what's around. And if we do, we'll probably misunderstand it. If you have your Bible open, I just want to encourage you to look back over the past few chapters there this is where i'll make my plug for a physical bible because it's helpful to lay that thing open and to see those headings and those things and if you look back at the end of chapter four or excuse me chapter four we we have this extended teaching from jesus you'll remember this this was before we were back together these parables so a string of parables and jesus explaining the purpose of parables We had this teaching, he was on the Sea of Galilee, he was in the boat, the people were on the sea, and he was teaching them these things. After that day was over, he told his disciples, we need to go to the other side of the sea. So instead of going back to the shore, they went on and headed across the Sea of Galilee. And it was on that night when a storm arose that the disciples feared would take their life. But you remember what Jesus does? He speaks and the storms calmed. And at that point, we move from these parables and this teaching of Jesus into a series of stories or events that Mark strings together, helping us see the power of Jesus, that he's God, and that he's over all things. So he calms the storm. They get to the other side of the sea eventually. When they arrive, a crazy naked man comes running towards them. Remember this? Jesus casts out not what de- one demon, but thousands of demons out of this man. We see the power of Jesus. But even though he displayed the power, most of the people who were there did not believe. They did not want him there. So they told him, go back where you came from. And so although they had only been there for a short time, Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat and they go back across the Sea of Galilee. And no sooner had they landed on the opposite shore... And Jesus walking through the crowds when a lady, believing that Jesus could heal, touched his garment. And by that touch, she was healed of an illness that she had had for 12 years. And remember, that story was stuck in the middle of a story about this man named Jairus, who had come to Jesus because his daughter was sick. In the midst of Jesus healing this other woman, his daughter dies. Remember what Jesus says to him? Do not fear. Only believe. Jesus goes to that man's house and he raises his daughter from the dead. Just reminding us of this, where we've been seeing the power of Jesus, his power over the storm, his power over demons, his power over sickness, his power over death. And in the process of those chapters, those stories, we've seen people who have placed their faith in him. But now as we come to chapter six, there's a shift. Now Mark begins to show us that while Jesus has come and he has made it clear who he is, not all believe. So this week, and for two more weeks, we're going to see three consecutive accounts of the rejection of Jesus or the rejection of those who speak on his behalf. Instead of having people who see Jesus rightly and believe, we begin to see people who don't believe and who reject him. I know that's a lot of preemptions What's that word? Preliminary? Yeah, that's the one. It's a lot, but hopefully it helps to see how this all works together in the book of Mark. This morning we're at a place where the focus is shifting. We've seen the power of Jesus, and now we see that despite his remarkable displays of power, many people don't believe. And it's in Nazareth where we find the people who thought they knew Jesus, but their familiarity or their perceived familiarity leads them to unbelief. So that's where we are. Mark chapter 6. We're just going to consider the first six verses. So I encourage you to follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Listen to verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and teaching of his word. Like I said, the start of chapter 6 marks both a shift in focus and in location. If you've been with us, we've read the Gospel of Mark. Most of the ministry of Jesus up to this point has been in and around Capernaum and along the Sea of Galilee. He went across the sea and back, but it's all kind of been right there around the, the sea. But now we're told that he takes a trip to his hometown of Nazareth, which is a small town, probably about 500 people at this time. It's about 25 miles, for those of you who care about geography, about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, okay? So he goes to Nazareth, and this is the place where he grew up. You know, he was born in Bethlehem, but he he grew up and spent most of his life in Nazareth, a town of about 500. So think about this. Maybe you've lived in a town that small before. Maybe you've been a part of a church that's about that size, about 500 people. It's a place where everyone knows everyone or at least is familiar with everyone. It's a place where there's probably not a lot of change over time. The same, what, 60 or 70 families probably live there forever. And this is the kind of place Jesus is going to, a place where he's known and where his family still lives. We're told he goes back and he's there on the Sabbath day and he teaches in the synagogue. He's teaching at his home church. He goes to his own people, but to quote John chapter 1, his own people did not receive him. That's the big idea of the passage. Jesus goes to a people who know him, quotes there, they're familiar with him, but they don't believe in him as the Christ. They don't see him as someone who should be trusted. They, in fact, are offended at the notion of who he is claiming to be. So to to give you a sense of structure, it's a story, but as we work our way through, we'll kind of break it into two different sections. First, we see the way the people respond to Jesus. And then we're gonna see the way that Jesus responds to the people. And what you'll notice is that on both sides of this, maybe you noticed this as we read the passage, on both sides of this, we're told that there's an astonishment or a marveling or an amazing. First, the people are astonished at Jesus but it's an astonishment that leads to unbelief. And in the second half, Jesus is astonished at the people because of their unbelief. Astonishment that leads to unbelief and then astonishment at unbelief. Things we consider both sides of the story, hopefully what it's going to do within us is create a longing to know Jesus rightly and to trust him fully. We'll see an example of those who saw him, but not rightly and did not believe. And we see Jesus' reaction, a heart of compassion, as he marvels that they've seen him and yet don't believe. We pick up the story in verse 2. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. We've seen this before. It was common that when a teacher would come to town, he would be given the opportunity to teach in the synagogue. Jesus by now is a known teacher. He has a reputation as a teacher. And we see that in part because he shows up in town with disciples, right? Here he comes in town and he has a following. He is a teacher, a known teacher, and he's given the opportunity to speak in the synagogue. What I want you to think about is what it would be like for Jesus to teach to this particular crowd. For those of you who have spoken before, maybe been a part of a church and left and then come back and had the opportunity to to pray or to speak, There's something special about looking out across a congregation and seeing people you know and who know you. And this was the experience in this case. Jesus is back in Nazareth, the place where he lived most of his life. He has not been gone for too long. And he looks out at a crowd of people who he knows and who know him. People he had grown up with and around. People he had gone to school with. People he had attended synagogue with. Families he knew, maybe people he had done work for. He was a carpenter. He may have built their barn. He's looking at faces that are familiar. He knew them, and they thought they knew him, which is part of the reason things go the way they do. Here's this hometown boy speaking with authority and wisdom, and it didn't add up to what they thought they knew of him. So we're told in verse 2 that they are astonished. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. I wonder, as we, as we take in this scene, maybe your mind went, is going the same place that mine did. Because back in chapter one, you remember Jesus stood up and he, he taught in the synagogue at Capernaum? Do you remember their reaction? You can look back at chapter one, verse 22. It says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority not as the scribes. And then a few verses later in verse 27, it says, all were amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A, a new teaching with authority. So we've seen this before where Jesus shows up in a synagogue and he teaches and people are astonished. But maybe what you've noticed as we read these verses is that this astonishment is different than the astonishment of chapter one. In chapter one, we have an Overly positive astonishment, but this is a, a different kind of astonishment. They, they heard the same teaching. They both recognize that it's a teaching with wisdom and authority, but the nature of the astonishment is different. For the people in, in Capernaum, it was an astonishment like, wow, that's astonishing. For people in Nazareth, it was. It's astonishing. Not sure what to make of this. They had questions. Their astonishment wasn't only astonishment at the the content of the teaching, but the source. How is it that this man is teaching these things? Look at verse two again. On the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many heard him and were astonished, saying, where did, and notice this, I think this is the right emphasis. Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They recognize the authority. They recognize the wisdom. They're confused about the source. This is why they're astonished. They know Jesus. They know that he wasn't trained as a rabbi. They know where he came from. They know his background. They know he has not been gone from Nazareth for long. Where did this man get this wisdom? How does this man do these things? So there's this confusion about, because they know Jesus. Jesus can't do these things. Let me just take us really briefly back to where we started. You know people who say, I know Jesus. And Jesus is not sufficient for these things. The problem is they don't really know Jesus. And that's what we see here in this passage. The questions continue in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And the scripture said they took offense at him. So here's your confirmation. This is not positive astonishment. This is what in the world is going on. This doesn't add up. They were offended at him. And they're offended because the things he's saying are coming from a man of common occupation, of uncertain birth, and from a common known family. We'll just look at each of those briefly. First, he's a man of common occupation. Is this not the carpenter? And based on that question, some have suggested that they're trying to, um, to speak pejoratively. But, but in this society, carpenters weren't viewed as insignificant. This wasn't a menial job. This was an important job. I don't think that they're trying to take shots at carpenters. But what they are saying is, he's a blue-collar guy just like the rest of us. This is the carpenter we're talking about here. Not saying it's bad, not bad to be a carpenter, it's honorable work. But carpenters don't teach with this kind of authority. Carpenters were ordinary men. So the question reveals our skepticism. How does this man speak this way? How does this man do these things? Is this not the carpenter, the the son of Mary? Now because of our culture, our way of thinking, we may miss the weight of what's being suggested here. But consider this, that in this time, read the genealogies. The only time someone is referred to as the son of their mother, is that there's something significant being revealed. Jesus normally would have been called the son of Joseph. They refer to him as the son of Mary, which at best is unusual and at worst, It's meant to be an insult. Most likely there have been rumors in Nazareth that he was born under sketchy circumstances. Rumors of an illegitimate birth. Calling Jesus the son of Mary is likely a way of poking at that reputation. Isn't this the man that was born out of wedlock? How can this man teach with wisdom? How can this man do mighty works? He's a man of common occupation of uncertain birth and we know his people we know his brothers James and Joseph and Judas and Simon we know his sisters all this points for them towards the fact that he can't be who claims to be and listen consider all the things they say we know all these things about Jesus he is not sufficient for these things We see is a perceived familiarity that leads to unbelief. And this is what Mark means when he says they were astonished. There was this conflict between what they're hearing and their familiarity with the person of Jesus. It says they were offended by him. I want to take a minute just to look at that word. I won't pronounce the Greek version of it for you for fear of making a fool of myself, but it sounds a lot like scandalized, okay? It's, it's, that's, we derive our word scandal from this Greek word that's translated here offense. It's a word that's used to speak of something that arises that causes problems, a scandal. And when scandals occur, they cause a ripple. In fact, they cause a problem. They cause people to stop or stumble, which is another way this word is used at times. To speak of someone stumbling over or tripping over something. They're offended. He's a scandal. They stumble over him. So let's take this and consider the way Paul uses this word also speaking of Christ in Romans chapter 9. Why have the Jews not been counted as righteous? This big question, Romans 9. He says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So he says this, they have stumbled. this word that's translated offense in our text. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. But whoever believes in him, Will not be put to shame. You see how this is used of Christ in both these places? They see Him and they are offended of Him. They stumble over Him. Oh, but church, isn't this the good news that we proclaim? That while many don't see Jesus and don't believe in Jesus, all those who believe in Him are saved. And this is the hope for you this morning. If you have never believed in Jesus, if you believe in Him, you have the hope of eternal life. All who believe in him will not be put to shame, but many stumble over him. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews demanded signs, the Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Then here's the hope again. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, he's the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we see Jesus in Nazareth and many were offended at him. We don't see the flip side in this text, but can we just put it there? But all who are called, both Jews and Greeks, for them, Christ is the power of God. For them, Christ is the wisdom of God. Paul's saying it's not a surprise when people see Jesus and hear his claims and they can't reconcile the two there will be people who are looking for something different and they will decide that Jesus doesn't fit the bill of what they need. For the Jews and for the people of Jesus' hometown, he was an offense, he was a scandal, he was a stumbling block. And we can stop here and recognize that this is a common reaction for us today, that there are scores and scores of people who have heard the name of Jesus and heard the news of the gospel, and yet they don't see Jesus for who he really is and they don't see their need for him. And they may concede a historical Jesus. I'm on board with a historical Jesus. They refuse to go beyond that. And the suggestion that if you don't believe in Jesus, that you will experience the eternal wrath of God, that is offensive. That's a stumbling block. So we have people with this image of Jesus. They'll say, love, mercy, compassion on board with all that, judgment, an exclusive means of salvation, that's utterly offensive. And so like the people of Nazareth, there's this temptation to see only part of who Jesus is. And there's an inability to reconcile the seeming divergent parts of his nature. I say seeming divergent because they're not divergent, but many can't reconcile the love of Jesus and the justice of Jesus. And for the people of Nazareth, they couldn't, recognize, excuse me, couldn't reconcile his humanity and his deity. Because he was the son of Mary, right? And he was the carpenter. They're not wrong. He was these things. But he's also God in flesh. He's also the creator and sustainer of all things. And we just can look back over the previous chapters and see his power over nature and his power over demons and his power over disease and his power over death. What the Bible reveals so clearly, don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, he showed us he was God. He made it very clear. And we should plead with others to see him for who he is. But one of the roadblocks we continually run into in our context is that so many people think they know him. I know Jesus. He's the the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. I know his sister. I know Jesus. Jesus isn't what you're saying he is. I'm sure we all know people who think they know Jesus well enough and they've made up their mind about him and they have decided that they do not need him. I think this is where we as a church have to work really hard. This is why we have to stay in the book because people are going to fire back at us. You don't understand who Jesus is. I know who Jesus is and we have to know the book and we have to come together week after week and sing true things about Jesus so we can be utterly convinced of who he is and of our desperate need for him. The problem is that for the people of Nazareth, they thought they knew him, but they didn't fully know him, and it created an inability to believe. Let me share with you, this is, you can put a parenthesis here, I'll tell you when we're done if you want to come back. There's another place in Mark where this word is used, this word offense, because it can be used to translate, it It can be stumbled or fall away. So we can go back to Mark chapter 4, remember the parable of the four soils. Jesus says in Mark 4, verse 16, that there are ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, so they endure for a while, but then when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, they immediately fall away. Now, I wanted to go there just to say this. We need one another, and we need the regular reminder of who Jesus is. And these are the means that he uses to hold us fast. So that none of us would be those who for a while say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but ultimately, when tribulation or persecution arises, fall away. We must strive to be people of faith, like we saw last week in Hebrews 11. Faith in Jesus. Or like the woman with the discharge of blood who believed that if she touched him, she would be made well. We see in our passages that the people of Nazareth are a people who, on a certain level, had known Jesus so well, but they did not know him fully. Their response is astonishment and unbelief. But then there's Jesus' response. He, too, is astonished. He marvels at their unbelief. Verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I think there's three parts to Jesus' response here. He starts just by acknowledging what's going on acknowledging that they don't believe. And he, he quotes, this is not original to Jesus, he quotes a well-known proverb of the day. So this is just Jesus speaking in a way that would be familiar to them. He's acknowledging, I recognize you don't believe. A prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and his household. What's he saying? I am one with authority. And you may not recognize it, but... To quote the proverb, this is how it goes. He's in his own town among his own relatives and they don't believe. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. If we go a little bit further back in Mark, we're getting a great recap today. Just before the parables, there's great crowds pushing in around Jesus. Do you remember what his family did? They come to get him. And we read in Mark 3:21: His family heard it and they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. seems like many of those who knew Jesus best did not believe, which should leave John 1 ringing in our heads. The true light, which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world, church. The world that was made by him. And the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own people did not receive him. It's a heartbreaking reality that so many saw Jesus and all the evidence you could ever ask for. They didn't believe. And while it's heartbreaking, truly, we also know it was a part of the plan of God. In a way, this is building a foundation for the greater rejection that is coming. We see this rejection, but we know that rejection is still to come. A rejection that would lead to his death. A death that would lead to our salvation. We see here is the reality that Jesus was rejected by so many They had all the evidence we could want, but they don't believe. So we see the result. He acknowledges their unbelief with this this proverb. And then we're told in verse 5 that he could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, which is an understandably um, controversial verse. people have stumbled over this verse. It's been misused by prosperity preachers and healers. Um, The question is: Does this verse mean that Jesus was incapable of doing mighty work there? Does this verse suggest that somehow God did not have power, that His power was limited? And I'll say on the front end: God's power is never limited by anyone outside of Himself. God is God, and God does whatever He pleases. In fact, and this is, I love this, the Bible sometimes, I think God puts humor here for us. He could do no mighty works there, except he healed a few people. Man, if on your worst day, you're still touching a few people and healing them, that's God, right? It's God. We're told he could do no mighty work there, which is not saying that God is controlled by people, but that God has chosen to respond to our faith and because of the unbelief of the people, Jesus did not, or to use Mark's words, could not do mighty works there. They stumbled over him. They did not have the faith that was required for him to work among them. Matthew says it this way, it's more I won't say it's more clear, but he says it this way, it He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief. And that's the main point of this passage, that there's these people who had all the evidence they could want. They saw the work of Jesus, and yet they didn't believe. They think they know Jesus, but the Jesus they know is not a Jesus they trust or see any need for. And we're told that Jesus, when he sees this, marvels. He's amazed, he's astonished. It's similar wording. Now Mark's not suggesting that he was surprised. He's not surprised, but he does have this sense of astonishment, of wonder, that there would be those who knew him so well, whom he had loved so dearly, on a personal level, they would reject him. He's astonished not only at their unbelief, but at the depth of their unbelief. And this is where we get this really interesting contrast. The people were astonished at Jesus and yet didn't believe. And Jesus is astonished at the fact that they don't believe. So we think about the scene, I think we get a peek into the humanity of Christ. We're not told anywhere else that he marvels at unbelief. But perhaps it's something about the fact that he knew these people. He had lived his life among them. And while he knew because he's God what would happen, Nevertheless, he stands there, and with compassion and with heartbreak, he marvels. They don't believe, and no doubt you've been there with your family and your friends, whom you've told time and time again, and yet they don't believe. I do think it's interesting to note that there are only two places in the Bible we're told that Jesus marvels, using this particular word. He marvels here at unbelief. And the only other place where this word is used, he marvels at unexpected belief. Luke chapter 7, where the Roman centurion comes to Christ. He believes. It says in Luke 7, 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So one preacher said it this way, and I'll just quote him because it's worth it. He says, there's two things that seem to make Jesus stand back and say, wow. Number one, those who believe when it's not expected that they would believe. And number two, those who disbelieve when there's every reason that they should believe. A Roman centurion, not someone you would expect to believe, but he does. And Jesus marvels. Not surprised. Just, just sitting in the in this that the gospels being taken to every tribe and tongue and nation, and then a heartbreaking marveling as he looks at those who should believe by human standards and don't. In both cases, he marvels. We're almost done. What we have in front of us is a passage about those who. Saw Jesus and thought they knew him, and based on what they knew, don't believe. There's lots of application here. It's a passage that should help us think about the nature of faith, how some respond to Jesus and others are offended by him. We could talk about how this passage foreshadows the coming rejection of Christ and how it paves the way for the cross. As I've thought about it this week in relation to us as a church, here's the thing that's continued to rise to the top for me that we are a people who are familiar with Jesus. And we live among people who are familiar with Jesus. But here's my fear that for all we know of him, there may be those among us who still doubt his power, those who still question his sufficiency. I wonder if you have sin in your life in the present or in the past that you are convinced that Jesus will not or cannot forgive. If you think there is sin in your life in the present or in the past that he cannot or will not forgive, you don't know Jesus correctly. Can I tell you with joy and hope that all who call on his name will be saved, and there is not a sin that he will not forgive to those who come to him in faith. Maybe you have a struggle that you think he is unable to help you overcome. Can I tell you with joy and hope, there is no struggle that Jesus cannot help you overcome. can't help but think of the things we've heard over the last chapter. After calming a storm, Jesus said to his disciples, why are you still so afraid? Have you no faith? Or what he said to Jairus when his daughter was dead? Do not fear. Believe." My fear for us is that we would be There would be those among us who, for all the evidence, for all the familiarity with Jesus, would doubt his power and his sufficiency. And this is why we must, church, work hard together, week in and week out, to know Jesus rightly. So we will keep coming to this room week after week and opening the scriptures and seeing Jesus so that we know him rightly and we can trust him fully. God forbid we ever be those of whom it is said Jesus marveled at their unbelief because for all they had, they did not trust him. The woman in chapter five said, if I can only touch him, I know I will be healed. That kind of faith comes from seeing the power of Jesus, from knowing who he really is. And knowing that if we believe in this one who was born of a virgin, who was a carpenter, who did have brothers and sisters and came from a good-for-nothing town called Nazareth, he was also God in flesh, and he is our Savior. I appreciate one writer who said, far too often humanity wants something other than what God has given The greatest obstacle of faith is not failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept a God who condescends to us as a carpenter. I think that's true. Far too often we don't believe that Jesus really is who he says he is and that he can really do the things he does. And even the best among us have had those times when we saw the situation and we wondered, is Jesus sufficient for this? We must trust that he is the bread of life and all who eat of him will be satisfied. He is the water and all who drink of him will never thirst. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And all who call on him will be saved. With that in mind, I'll end with this admonition. May we not look at the people of Nazareth and shake our heads at them. But may we look at them and recognize our own weakness. And then, may we run headlong into the arms of Jesus, confessing our trust in him. May we never be one of those of whom it said he marvels at their unbelief. But may we be among those of whom it is said that we lived by faith in the only Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us.